Welcome to Meowcore, the podcast where I, Laura, show my cool friend Panya the music that I like, which is mostly hard rock and heavy metal. There she is. Panya, are you ready for Judas Priest? No. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not ready for Judas Priest. Why? What can I do to help? Uh... You know, honestly, it has nothing to do with Judas Priest itself, and that's not fair to them. I'm absolutely certain it's going to be a really good show. I'm just annoyed because my good headset's microphone seems to have died out of nowhere. So hopefully, you know, we'll do this episode and I'll get more cheerful. So let's mm -hmm. let's go into it. Mm-hmm. Let's go. Uh, Judas Priest was formed in uh, 1969 together with many of our big 70s bands. Uh, but they had some trouble getting the right contract and getting the right promotion for their work. So they started making good money toward the end of the 70s, and they started getting getting famous toward that time. Okay. And uh, the second half of the 70s is where our journey begins. Let's go listen to Before the Dawn from 78. Yeah, like half my brain has wandered off somewhere else. So let's let's get organized here, brain. Mm -hmm. Let's get organized. Let's go listen to Before the Dawn by Judas Priest. Did, did, did you pick the saddest possible song off that album? Yeah, possibly. But tears. also my favorite. Oh my god, oh. that's oh, it's so sad. Oh, it is, no. yeah. How is that heavy metal? I'm, my heart is breaking. It, uh, we, we're people just like the rest of you. We walk among you. No, this is, <laughs> oh my God, I just want to give him a hug. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's yeah. the saddest thing. Mm -hmm. I'm but sorry, I'm smiling. It's not even like he's, he's screaming about it. He's like, he's like crying about it. Like he's not even yeah. mad. I don't understand. Mm-hmm. What's happening focus. here? Oh, oh, Anya. <laughs> what's what's happening here? I just wanted to pet him. Why are you so mean? To start what? me off with this really sad thing. Oh my goodness. Oh, you felt the, it so deeply. The really sweet guitar and the piano, and I know there was electric guitar in there, but it's not. Mm -hmm. I'm so confused now. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't, it's I don't beautiful. understand. It's it's very beautiful and it's not at all what I expected. And if you were here I would throw like a little stuffed toy at you for confusing me so badly. <laughs> do you have a do you have a toy around you? I you have like six. No yeah, throw somewhere. No, okay. no. I have like six toys hanging around. I've got a, a little reversible plushy stuffed octopus and I'm going to turn it to the angry side and put it on my head. <laughs> Picture that. Panya with uh, uh, an octopus, one of the reversible ones. And it's from angry. Tea Turtle. The, the yeah. angry Tea Turtle <laughs> one. I've turned all his rainbow onto the inside because I'm so hurt by this song. I don't mm. understand. I thought this was heavy metal. I thought there was going to be anger and scrimming. Yeah, there will be. Instead, it made me cry. Mm -hmm. Rob Halford had a tough life. I guess all of them had a tough life, but he had to be the front man of this stuff, and he had to keep his 
who he who he loved a secret for decades until 98 when he came out gonna cuddle all of the little stuffed creatures nearby until i feel better mm. and Although a funny I guess thing thinking mm -hmm. of that that's it's true did a lot of songs like of this type lyrically um gender the person they're speaking to this one doesn't do that this one's nope. in second person which mm -hmm. really it's it's i mean it's nice and it's beautiful and i really like that in a stylistic sense but it's also concealing things i guess isn't it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah there's some things had to be concealed and at the same time in other songs things kind of popped out that he has songs where he talks about walking into a bar and all eyes on him and in this bar the leather boys are messing with the denim dudes mm. and no one thought anything of it because they thought a I fight guess... they didn't think the other kind of thing did they <laughs> yeah mm. or maybe the people who could think of anything of it were a minority and there's a lot of things that, that straight people are not able to hear because they don't have the experience. Well, they don't know they're listening for it, mm -hmm. I guess. It's that, that too. we're going to get real political here for a second in, in a way that's not that usual for us. But when you are of the group that is perceived as the default, mm -hmm. you tend to interpret everything that you see and hear as belonging to that group mm -hmm. every single thing so even if you know any any um heterosexual person whatever who was listening to this song would uh, a guy would imagine a girl and a girl would imagine a guy and you know you would imagine just whichever is most suited to you mm -hmm. and the same thing with the other kinds of songs you would imagine it only through the lens of what you perceive as as normal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get that. Which, in a way, I think is one of the really good and powerful things about all kinds of art. And why discussions of what the artist intended or what they believe in relation to their art can be really dangerous because the purpose for me at least of a lot of different kinds of art music writing paintings tv shows it's not just about what the creator wants to express even though that's mm -hmm. important it's also about what the uh the the listener mm -hmm. I'm I'm running I it's also about what you as the person who takes in the art chooses to get out of it. Mm -hmm. And those don't have to be the same thing. Yep. I like I feel like we've kind of gotten into a place a little bit with culture where there is this insistence that those be the same thing. And I think that's kind of that that's bad. Yeah, it's one of the beautiful things about art. Yeah. This this freedom to interpret it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, when I went up to visit my sister back in the spring, we went to the the local museum of art, um, big, nice art museum, very 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 nice. 
um, and there was some particular things that she wanted to show me in the modern art section. And we had a very interesting conversation about the differences in the way that she and I interpreted and took in more modern art. Mm -hmm. From my perspective, I felt like there was a lot to it that just, it didn't have as deep of a meaning for me because a lot of it, a lot of what's considered modern art is incredibly abstract. And I felt like there was no structure. There was nothing mm -hmm. to guide me in any way towards an interpretation. So it yeah, just looked to me like somebody had just thrown paint in a canvas. Mm -hmm. Whereas for my sister, the opposite is true. She likes that lack of structure because she feels it gives her a freedom to apply her own interpretation. To mm -hmm. see what she wants to see in it. And I just, I mean, we didn't have an argument about it or anything. It was just a discussion. But I found that very interesting that we could see the same concepts and ideas and feel them in exactly opposite ways. And that was okay. Mm -hmm. That was okay. Yeah. The particular one that she wanted to show me was a bit easier to interpret. It had a little more structure and it evoked a, a stained glass window in a cathedral and we both really liked it. Mm -hmm. But this song is just so sad. Yeah. Yeah, so welcome, welcome. We're gonna, with the next songs, we're gonna do things a bit louder and is it going to get more exciting or are you just going to keep breaking my heart? Mm, let me see. Do I have other heartbreakers here? No. No, they're more like about... Well, the next one has a bit of a social critique well, note to it. That's and As then, we've discussed before, that's not unusual for that era. Mm -hmm. And then we get some party songs and love songs and a... A sci-fi one, one of my okay. favorite. And okay, some okay. mythology. Where's so, the scrimming? This is heavy metal. The... They're supposed to be scrimming and wailing electric guitars, and instead you, how do you like? Mm. This is mm. the first song you've played for me where I felt like the electric guitar was crying. Oh yeah, we we haven't done much bluesy people from the eighties. The bluesy yeah. people of the eighties did that a lot, like Gary Moore. Yeah, yeah. but like. Like I've heard them wail and I've heard them scream and and I've heard them, you know, you play the notes just so and it can sound like they're laughing. This is the first mm -hmm. one I've heard where it sounded like the electric guitar was sobbing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll get you more. Okay. Maybe. I don't know if I can stand <laughs> it. <laughs> Only one per episode. We'll okay, see. Okay, okay. One per episode and put it like early on so that you can bring me back up and I'm not just crying at the end. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's go. Um, I want to show you the lyrics first because the video is um, the video is very distracting, but I still want you to see it. So I'm sending you the lyrics. The lyrics are on the video you sent me. Mm, for breaking the law. Yes. Okay. But look at them still, because what happens them. on the screen is funny. Yeah? They just had a lot of fun with this video. It's kind of one of the things that makes me feel odd about music videos, is that in some cases, some artists will make a video that that really tells the story of the song. And 
some artists will make a video that is just them performing the song, not just, but is them performing the song. And then sometimes you get a video where it's just the weirdest thing in the world. We're going to listen to Breaking the Law by Judas Priest. Let's go. Yeah, you're right. That video is really distracting. <laughs> yeah, I guess they didn't, they couldn't really make a video about actually breaking the law that would make him look really bad. So they, I mean, they, they kind of did. They kind of did. But it's, it's. But they were threatening people with guitars. Oh, no, they were threatening people with the music. Yeah. Although I'm enormously entertained by the element of the video that is the security officer pulling out his, his paper electric guitar and effectively joining in. <laughs> but I think yeah. it does make me think that there's a, a deeper message, not just to the song, but to the video um, as a whole. Mm -hmm. Look, when when rock and roll and, and heavy metal and and this kind of music back in the, the 30s and 40s, began to really become a thing, began to become popular with young adults and teens. The thing that the security guard did is exactly what people were afraid of. They were afraid mm -hmm. that young adults, teens, would listen to this music and stop obeying, not the law as in what the government laid down, but the social laws. Mm -hmm. the the social contracts between people that dictated what your behavior should be and who you should be nice to and how you should do things and that's mm -hmm. that's what they were afraid of and this this video depicts that honestly quite clearly that this this group of people comes into the bank and they're not attacking with guns they're not attacking they're attacking with music their weapon is the music um i was entertained by the guy's glasses breaking that was funny um <laughs> Their weapon is, is yeah. the music, which honestly is, uh, to a certain extent, hard to define as a weapon. You don't think of it that way. But what it carries mm -hmm. and what it, what it makes you think and feel. And then that it sweeps up in its grip this person who's supposed to be the guardian of the law. Supposed to be the protector. And instead, mm -hmm. he's not doing his job. He's not doing what yeah. society has decided his job is. He's joining in with this. And you can see how that would frighten people. And mm -hmm. that particular fear of music, this kind of music, has never gone away. Ever. It's been um, almost 100 years. So, yeah, in the 50s with Elvis Presley and even some of the folks like that were a bit older than that. Mm-hmm. With that kind of music, with the rock and roll, it's been almost 100 years. It's been 70, 75 years, and people are still afraid. There are still people who are afraid of the results, the effect that this kind of music has. And yet, I honestly, I feel like this is, this is a bit hilarious that I have paid attention to some of the so-called American standards that Sinatra has performed, uh, had performed, made popular. They're not any better about what they encourage people to do and what they say, but it was just the smooth, mellow-voiced dude, so... What did you... Did you like the, the guitar tone? I really like this... Yes. ...metallic sort of thing. Yeah. It's 
It's like metal scratching against metal, but it echoes. Uh -huh. I like the, the sound that they have. Uh-huh. And I thought okay. it, it was interesting that, like, he's got a good voice. He's good at singing, as the first song proved. Like, that was mm -hmm. just setting aside the, the lyrics. It was, that's that's a beautiful sound. But I found it interesting that there's no there's no melody line, really, in the chorus. It's this chant. It's this mm -hmm. stomp. Mm -hmm. And I found that to be very interesting. Let's go to another song from the same album. You'll see in the video more people with cardboard guitars. Oh, boy. Uh, this one's called Living After Midnight. Okay. Let's listen to Living After Midnight by Judas Priest. Aw, they show that sign at the end, but there's no loud noise of defiance. Sad. Where did you want a loud noise of defiance? At the very end where they have, of the video, where they have the sign that says, Quiet, please. No unnecessary noise. And I wanted to hear a guitar oh. scream right over that shot. <laughs> well, they just made the noise. And then the kids got onto the bus to go home. Yeah. And make some more noise and drive their parents batty, probably. <laughs> yeah. Probably. And, and here you see a priest in their new garments like any 70s band until then they were they had the flared jeans and the pretty shirts right the, the hippie stuff. sort of stuff and now mm -hmm. it's like oh and i recognize all of this this is the same as what heavy metal people wear today just you know mm -hmm. 50 years on but still this is the same thing well 40 years on yeah. i guess here's your heavy metal you've been waiting for the heavy metal yes to come. here it <laughs> is <laughs> Here it yeah. is. Here's the black and the studs. And Started by uh, a gay man who uh, walked into a sex shop one day and thought, let's put everyone in the band in studs and leather. Let's do this. I didn't see that much leather in this video. Lots of studs, but not so much leather. So here is your... Here's your heavy metal. Here's my heavy metal. Oh. Here's the studs. I didn't see that much leather. If you want to know the truth, uh, maybe, maybe very black, black spandex. Yeah, black spandex, black bodysuits. Uh, I saw a mosh pit starting. Yeah, that tickled me. And, <laughs> and that inspired uh, Buck, a gay man who went into uh, a sex shop and thought that's that's a good idea. Leather and studs, a good idea for my band to wear. Uh huh. Okay. Guys okay, living after midnight. So, I have to mention that Judas Priest in the 80s had a song called Grinder. Uh, it was spelled <laughs> correctly, of course. <laughs> but it does lead one to wonder, doesn't it? We've had some technical difficulties. The previous five minutes may have been a little jittery. We apologize. We're moving on. Let's listen to Turbo Lover from the mid-80s. Turbo my, Lover. One of my favorite poems ever in metal. Oh, it's a, it's a live video from 86. It's a beautiful show. Okay, so I'm going to be really super distracted is what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Okay, <laughs> here we go. But it has lyrics in the closed captions, so you can play those. Okay, here we go then. Let's let's listen to Turbo Lover by Judas Priest. Sir, 
sir, I'm going to need you to quit crawling around on the stage like that. It was beautiful, I'm, right? I'm going to need you to stop doing that. I can't focus. <laughs> he wanted this to lie under the big robot, too. This is unacceptable. I'm, you, you're going to have to stop doing that. That's I can't take it. <laughs> I, I can't it's take it. It's a love song. It's a love song. Yeah, yeah, no, it's not. It's a lust song. It's a yeah, okay. It's a lust like song. That. There is a distinct <laughs> difference here. Okay. That's right. I was trying to look for a word that wasn't a sex song, but there you are. No, it's a, a lust, lust song. song. Mm -hmm. Which isn't yeah. necessarily bad, but it's not a love song, okay? Don't even. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, the right. first one was a love song. Mm -hmm. This one was something else and I'm I'm gonna need him to quit doing that thing with his hips too <laughs> it's like when I go to see some of these musicians in, in concert like actually see them and they take their shirts off or whatever and I'm just going I'm gonna need you to put that back on because I can't concentrate now <laughs> yeah that's Panya's big problem it is I, I don't have I when people are singing most of the cores of my brain are occupied and if you take your shirt off or whatever you're gonna lose part of my attention span okay i'm gonna get focused on things that i'm not really sure you want me to get focused on you know just because i have a six core brain doesn't mean that all the cores do what i want them to do <laughs> six core brain yeah so there's what there's your um Strong uh, male character. I like oh, Rob Halford's sure. strong male characters. The painkiller, the turbo lover, the sentinel, the redeemer of souls, the dragonaut. It's nice. Dude, that's interesting, though, that you phrase it as, as a strong male character. And then and I think about, and you list off these song titles, and they're all sort of semi-heroic as far as characters go. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But the name of the band is one of the greatest mythological traitors known to mm -hmm. human mythology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like this complete contrast. I want to check again. They took it from a title of something. The name came from Bob Dylan's song, The Ballad of Frankie Lee and Judas Priest. Hmm. Interesting. 67. Interesting. I haven't heard that one. I'm being stared at by a different blue-eyed kitty. <laughs> what do they want? Uh, me to leave them alone. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm being observed very carefully. <laughs> we'll get so to that, that. Yeah. That's turbo lever. We uh, accelerated and we shattered and exploded. Right, which is honestly a really lovely, a very uh, lyrical description of what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. Which I they kind of, I kind of really in, like. In perfect synchronicity. It's him sitting with his thesaurus and his dictionaries and his uh, grumpy cat mug and writing lyrics. <laughs> It's grumpy cat mug. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, very proud of him for those. So, 
let's listen to Painkiller. This is the probably the heaviest song you will hear today. It's an on uh, is the word onslaught uh, on the senses. Okay. And that's why we're not watching the video because the video has all sorts of angry faces and flashing lights. So let's listen and, to and it. And I Spotify. would just not be able to concentrate in any way. And I want you to see the the story of the painkiller who saved the earth. Okay. Okay, then let's listen to Painkiller by Judas Priest. I think I just got run over by a flaming semi truck. Exactly. Yeah, it was flaming. Yeah. Oh, it was definitely <laughs> flaming in, in both senses of the word. <laughs> uh, that's heavy metal. Mm hmm. I don't, yeah. everything we've listened to before, I don't know what it was. That was heavy metal. Here that's what I think of when I think of heavy metal is, is that, that starts mm -hmm. in on the drums that take over your heartbeat and you mm -hmm. can't hear anything else and then brings in these guitars that scream and wail and make noises that I didn't know you could make a guitar make, <laughs> but it's definitely a guitar. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know you could yeah. make it make that noise. And then <laughs> I, I don't know how Rob Halford still has a voice left after singing that song. Um, yeah. It, it sounds like he's screaming from the depths of hell mm -hmm. with it. And it's a raspy scream, too. A little, mm -hmm. but some of that I feel like is the result of having to scream that loud. It starts <laughs> to rasp. Um I was thinking when I was looking at the lyrics, when I was listening to to the story, I don't have any idea if these are connected or not, but I couldn't help but think of the comic book character Ghost Rider. Mm. I don't know when it was created, Ghost Rider. Uh, I looked it up. Um, the late 70s. Mm-hmm. The late Maybe 70s. Then. Um, the one of the most well-known incarnations of the Ghost Rider, Danny Ketch, was, appeared first in 1990. So mm -hmm. this song is probably not connected to that. But the first incarnation of the Ghost Rider, Johnny Blaze, debuted in 72. Mm -hmm. And continued to appear in his own series for some time uh, mm -hmm. he rides a flaming motorcycle he turns into a flaming skeleton uh, he is possessed by the spirit of vengeance but he's mm -hmm. a hero <laughs> yeah interesting I haven't so, read much about these lyrics could be I, I would be very surprised if there are consciously connected but it wouldn't surprise me at all to find out that rob halford had read ghost rider had been exposed to that concept mm -hmm. or to find out that ghost rider as a character concept was inspired by heavy metal music mm -hmm. you know yeah either of those could be accurate but it, it feels like that and yeah. it's very interesting to me to listen to this song uh, for two reasons, not just, you know, this is, oh, this is heavy metal, this is what I think of in heavy metal, but also a lot of 
more modern, heavy songs, I think I've spoken before, I have trouble picking out the different instruments from each other. It all mm-hmm. just blends together. I don't have that trouble with this. I can hear mm-hmm. two distinct guitars. I can hear mm-hmm. drums. I can't hear the bass, but that's that's a me thing more than anything else. Well, me neither. I cannot hear it. But I know it must be there. I know if we removed it, I would notice the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that is a function of the mix as much as anything else, which I quite like. I would very much like for mixes to go back to this kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. There was also never any point where I felt like I couldn't hear what the singer was saying because the instruments drowned him out. Like, as far as I'm concerned, the balance of all of the instruments, including the voice, was perfect mm-hmm. in the way that this was mixed. Hmm which I really quite like, and I would like to hear more like that with that perfect balance. Mm-hmm. The other thing that stands out to me from this song is that in a mainstream culture sense, metal music is frequently associated with the devil, with with Satanism, with all the negativity of the Christian mythos. Mm-hmm. And yet I listen to these songs, not just this one, but others. And they don't talk about that. No. Nope. They talk about, like, okay, it mentions vengeance in this song. And yet anybody who seriously sits down and considers themselves has to accept that vengeance is an element of the human psyche that can be used for good. It's dangerous. It can mm-hmm. consume you. But it's still, it's an important element. And in this song, in other songs that we've listened to, it is cast as a savior, as mm-hmm. a hero. That there are these, the subjects of these songs are are flaming, are occasionally somewhat violent, are loud, mm-hmm. are metallic, are fast. But they're still cast as saviors. They're still cast as heroes. Yeah. And in some what cases, went... it's not just a, it's not anti-hero. It's, mm-hmm. they're straight up heroes. Mm-hmm. What went under the deadly wheels was evils. He mm-hmm. was fighting evil. He's the savior. He, he even resurrected people afterwards. Right. And then he goes yeah. back home or to the skies. It doesn't mm-hmm. say home. Yeah. Um, and so my mind a few years ago, when I fully digested this song, was consumed with What's he? What's he like? What did he do after he saved the world? Well, where did he take all that power from? It's I love these characters that he makes. Yeah, I mean, my brain immediately jumps into standard mythological things, and in many cases, such characters are they sleep between they go to spaces mm. where they rest, where they sleep, where they're non-operative. Hmm. And in a way, that's kind of really sad because then you have these characters who are so powerful, who are so fiery, who do so much damage, but they never truly get to experience being human because they're not human. Mm. They sleep between, and so we don't have stories of them falling in love, or if we do, it's tragedy. We don't mm-hmm. have stories of... of uh, 
what modern fanfic writers think of as as uh like a day in the life kind of thing. We don't have those kinds of things for these characters because in a mythological sense the tradition mm-hmm. is that they sleep between the times when they're needed and they are woken when necessary. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good album. If you want more metal like this, this entire the entire Painkiller album is pretty amazing. I think I will probably listen to some of these songs when I want to scream at something. I don't mm-hmm. think I can write code to this. <laughs> it might be too intense to write code to. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. And we get to our last song. This one is called Holes of Valhalla. It's from 2014. Um, oh, pretty, and it, I chose this one. recent. Mm-hmm. I How chose long this one because. Uh, since 69. Uh, Rob Halford left for I think 12 years they found themselves another singer they they did an album then he came back and they've been active since then so what's the years on that 50 years mm-hmm. 50 yeah. years and they're still making music they're still putting on shows that's insane mm-hmm. that's that's intense And I chose Holes of Valhalla for you because it has these metallic sounding guitars. Uh, They're also this typical cyclical riff that they have, kind of, kind of classical, I guess. Yeah, I noticed that in some of the other songs that there's, there's this repeating element. Mm -hmm. It has a Viking theme, which I love the mythology of those nations up north. Yeah. And, uh, this one has also all of Rob Halford's possible voices. So let's listen to Halls of Valhalla. Okay, let's listen to Halls of Valhalla by Judas Priest. Here we go. You said it had all his voices, but I didn't hear the pretty voice from the first song. Ah, well. Can't have everything. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Can't have all the things, but you're right. There was the growl and the scream and the scream growl and the whisper growl and the... The cat with blue eyes is staring at me again. <laughs> we'll get to that. You'll get yeah. your turn. And the mounting scream. Yep. I, I, it's, it tickles me a lot when I listen to it. It's great. It's I don't know how song. a scream makes me feel so good. Uh, <laughs> you need to go back to Turbo Lover and think about that. Well, I'm used to being excited by the lower register, not by... But Rob, but Rob Halford does it. When he screams, I love it. Okay. There's something about this voice that makes Laura like screams in a carnal way. Mm. In a carnal way. <laughs> yeah. I think Rob Halford would approve. Mm-hmm. Sure. And uh, yeah, they've, they've done at least two albums since, since this one. Since the 2014 one, and they're still going a bit slower wow. than before because well, yeah. one of yeah Rob have Rob had some problems uh, with his health recently, which he overcame. I think it was some sort of cancer. Well, he must be and like then... 70 by now. Mm-hmm. Although he's and, better preserved uh, than Keith Richards. Not that that's saying much. Everybody's better preserved than Keith Richards. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how that man feature. is still alive. Mm-hmm. That's a different yeah. discussion. 
that's a different yeah. discussion. Although I do find it, it was very interesting having seen plenty of pictures of Rob Halford now with the, mm-hmm. the bald and the white beard and, and the, the bulk and watch the videos from the seventies and eighties where he has the blonde hair and he's not as built. And it was sort of startling the contrast. <laughs> Who is this boy? Yeah, yeah, like, wait a minute. How did this, how did he go from this to that? And I'm sure if I looked at pictures from like every year, which you can do, I would be able to see it. But right now I'm just like, wait a minute. How did we go from this, this blonde semi-Adonis to heavy metal Santa? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And in addition to being heavy metal Santa, there's something very, um, yeah, there's something benevolent about him. And I also like the way he totally runs with uh, the fact that people call him a metal god. He, When he starts an interview, he says greetings from the metal god. He's fine with it. He's loving it. There's a crossover video I found. Uh, I was starting to watch it while we were having the technical difficulties of Rob Halford and Baby Metal. And the introduction to the video, like the first full minute, is this anime-esque build-up of when the fox god meets the metal god, a new legend is born. And it just cracked me up. I haven't finished watching the video yet. We got things resolved before I finished it. Although that is (laughs) one of the other things that leads into why I refer to him as Heavy Metal Santa. It's like... We'll probably do an episode on Baby Metal proper at one point. But I remember when Baby Metal first began to become popular here in the States, that there were people who were going, this isn't real metal. This isn't (laughs) real. They're not heavy metal. (laughs) And then like Rob Halford and a couple of the other metal legends were like, no, we're just going to adopt these girls. Mm -hmm. And the haters just shut up. Yeah. Like they just went silent. Not even a couple, many of them. Many of them embraced them. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, I just remember very clearly Rob Halford and, and seeing and, you know, one of the, the characteristics of Japanese music in in the sub-style, I guess, or the primary, it's complicated. Um, at any rate, a lot of, of the visual aspects of Japanese music plays heavily on looking young. Mm-hmm. I don't actually know how old the members of Baby Metal are at this point, but <laughs> they look young. They're made up, they're dressed, they behave on stage, their personas, to look young. So to have these girls that are made up, set up to look like 16, 17, with Rob Halford, who's, you know, heavy metal Santa, white bearded and all, <laughs> is just, I think that's just a great image and a great contrast mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. And I think it makes it very clear what kind of person he truly is. If you hadn't figured that out from the fact that the songs that he sings and plays aren't about, they're, they're about destroying evil and they're about going to Valhalla and they're about being a good lover and, Mm -hmm. and that. Yeah. And there's, there's a balance to him that to his character that I really like and uh, a peace within him. He's accepted himself after he stopped doing the drugs and alcohol, um, he became someone who I would I would really like to emulate. Someone with this cool and this balance to the point where 
someone on a podcast made kind of make made fun of him and said that the his voice is so good because he he goggles uh jizz I mean, and sure why not yeah and a friend of his who's also a metal singer sebastian bach got very offended by that and left the effing podcast just walked and... out of the recording yeah, he said, Do you, he, Rob is a friend of mine, you shouldn't be saying stuff like that. And soon after that, Rob was on the same podcast, and they mentioned it, and he said, I do not gargle, I swallow. <laughs> and that's, that's how he dealt with it. He just... Yeah. It was great. Wow. Yeah, I like, I like his attitude. Okay. And another, another thing from reading his book, I can say a lot of things, but last thing that fascinated me from his first book, Confess... He realized that all of his lovers, until he met this current husband, were straight. And he did doubt, maybe they were bisexual, but at some point in the relationship, he always realized that he was a sort of um, an experiment for them, that they didn't want to commit to. And they, the people they really loved were all women. So he's sure that he was always falling on these straight guys. There's a whole discussion there I want to get into, but I'm not sure now is the time. Mm, probably not. But um, it, it's that, interesting. That basically boils down to this this definition of bisexual and and straight, and I have a lot of disagreements with the way he apparently perceived it. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I I'm willing to accept that he might have been an experiment for them, and they were more interested in women than men. But I don't think it's fair for him to claim or anybody to believe that that makes them straight. I, hmm. I mean, and I'm it's not, it's entirely possible that my husband will turn around and bop me on the back of the head for this, but I generally <laughs> feel that most people have more of an element of bisexuality in them than they're willing to acknowledge but I also feel that bisexuality as a concept as a phrase has become limited in a way that's really unfair to those of us who actually are bisexual it's like yes I'm married mm -hmm. to a man and yes most of the time 60-70% of the time when I crush on a guy or fall in love or whatever it's on a guy that does not mm -hmm. make me any less bisexual. It does not make me heterosexual. It yeah. just means I lean towards men. But there's this idea that if you're bisexual, if you claim to be bisexual, that if you lean in either direction in any way, that you are really just faking it. That yeah, you need this perfect actually, balance. Yeah, that you yeah. have to somehow be perfectly balanced. And that's not only very difficult and, and extremely improbable, but isn't true to the experience of myself. It isn't true to the experience of pretty much every other bisexual person I've ever really spoken to. Mm -hmm. And even with that, if a woman gets with a woman in the end, they will tell you, oh, so you were lesbian all along. Yeah, it's like, no, that's not how that works. I can never prove myself enough uh, in my bisexuality yeah. to some of you. Yeah. Although I suppose what that really links to is, is this concept. I don't know how strong it is in your culture, but in the United States, for all that polyamory is a thing, in a, on occasion, 
the idea of people being anything other than serially monogamous at worst, and I use that phrase on purpose, is offensive to a lot of people. The idea that it's possible to love, to be in love with, to deeply care about more than one person at the same time, regardless of how that relationship is expressed, if it's expressed in any way romantically or mm -hmm. sexually, the idea is that you must somehow be cheating on one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just, that, that all, I also find that deeply offensive. Like, no, mm. I, I love my husband. He is, he is listening to me. Uh, <laughs> he is, he is the light of my life. I would not be where I am and who I am with the strength that I have found without him, without so much about who he is. But that does not change how deeply I care about my best friend in Colorado or how deeply I care about my best friends in the D.C. area or how deeply I care about you. Mm -hmm. Or Should I feel offended, too? Because I believe in that, too. I don't know. I'm not at that point yet. It's, Maybe it's not offended. It's up to you but... to decide how, how you want to mm. respond to people believing that. I just... Mm. Yeah, in my country too, monogamy is the norm. Anything else is uh, debauchery that comes from the evil West. If I roll my eyes any harder, they're going to fall out my head. Let's talk about something else. Let's, yeah. let's talk about books. Actually, no. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about no, cats. Let's yes. talk about cats. Because I've mentioned a couple of times while we're recording that a blue-eyed kitty has come in and stared at me. Mm -hmm. So I've mentioned that we have five cats, but... You will have probably noticed, Meowsters, that I almost never talk about the fifth one. Mm -hmm. I rarely mention Stormlight. That's because she almost never hangs around. She typically spends most of her time downstairs with my husband, kind of, while he's working, kind of hiding behind things. She has a couple of, of nooks she likes to be in, and that's her safe space, and that's where she is. We almost never see her upstairs. She just came upstairs. She's been upstairs for like the last 20, 30 minutes, just kind of hanging around in, in the computer room. Um, Amazing. She hasn't let me touch her, but she let me give her some treats. Uh, she sat on the arm of my husband's computer chair and in his lap for a while. Um, and, and she watched me and she was laying on the floor just now and then I noticed her and she departed. But <laughs> this, is, this is very unusual. I'm, I'm hoping... That it's not because she started to feel unsafe downstairs. I'm hoping it's just because she was like, everybody is up here and it's a nice day and I'm going to come visit. I don't mm. know. Um, I know that she has, that she does sometimes come upstairs. There's a, a box in the library that I have deliberately chosen to keep because she'll get into it and feel safe there. This is the kitty who turned up on our doorstep at the old house not long after we moved in some I guess 14 15 years ago now and she had four little kittens that their eyes were barely even open and we're pretty sure that her humans threw her out when she got pregnant so she's always been very skittish and shy she's always been very hesitant about letting anyone other than my husband really 
pet her or be around her. For whatever reason, and I've never figured this out, he's made of catnip. Like, I have met maybe two cats in my entire life who don't like him. <laughs> who get who get shirty with him or don't, don't immediately go to him and go, I want you to pet me. Um, <laughs> before my mom moved uh, much closer to me, even before she moved down to Florida for a time, uh, we went over to the house that I grew up in for Christmas, Michael and I, for the first time. And I was explaining to him that some of the cats that I'd grown up with, that they were very shy, that they that they didn't normally like to be petted, that they didn't greet strangers, and he shouldn't be offended by this. And literally, as I'm <laughs> saying this, the cat in question trots into the room, hops up into his lap, and headbutts his hand. <laughs> and I just stopped in the middle of a word with my mouth hanging open and gave up. <laughs> just gave up. Wow. But I don't... We don't know anything about where Stormlight came from or her heritage or anything except insofar as she has come to live with us. But she is no Mirari. That's cables are not for kitties. She is mm -hmm. the only cat I have ever met who is neither white nor pointed but still has blue eyes. Mm -hmm. She has these beautiful Wedgwood blue eyes. Um, she's a silver tabby and it's just the most incredibly gorgeous combination. You know, if she was oh, yeah. more confident, she would be just this incredibly beautiful kitty. And it was because of those eyes that I named her Stormlight. Uh, I had just encountered Brandon Sanderson's Stormlight archive books. And if you want to learn more about Brandon Sanderson, you can go back four or five episodes where I talk about him in more depth. But the simple version is that Stormlight, as a as a magic uh, system, magic element, is typically represented by blue, by and it, it is it's literally a light from a storm, which I thought kind of looked like the color of her fur, that sort of of gray pale light. So that mm -hmm. became her name, and she was the first cat that we had who was not named after a figure in Greco Roman mythology either. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, as you can hear from the names now, we sort of stopped doing that. Mm -hmm. And Jana is really the first one that we've gone back to for that. But she was she was the first cat that Michael and I adopted or were adopted by that was not named after a mythological figure. And she's departed now. I think she's gone back downstairs. The attention was too much for her. <laughs> I was originally going to tell you the story of Marari and the fetching. But I think I'll save that now because Stormlight has given me a better story. <laughs> okay. Thank you. And it's not like Marari ever stops fetching me things. So I'm sure I'll have more of those. Okay. Get up here and beep Jana's nose. Yes. Yes. She says, no, Mom, I'm going to sleep now. Leave me alone. <laughs> I has a nap. Joanna. Yep. She in the cat okay. tree has a nap. As yeah. kittens do. So today I want to introduce you to an author that's probably considerably west, less well-known, but whom I have found fascinating since I first discovered her works. Like several of the other authors I've given you, Sharon Shin's books cover a pretty wide range of story types. 
She doesn't really stick to one. She has... I can't refer to them as trilogies because she has this tendency to just keep writing in the same world, but she has four or five different world spaces that are all pretty distinct from each other that I find fascinating. Uh, The first book of hers that I encountered was actually the, uh, the third book in a series, which I found kind of annoying. Because then I had to go back and find the first two books and go, what is going on here? Um, Like some other semi-fantasy books, it's the world of Samaria is the sort of world where you initially start off reading it and you think this is just your regular fantasy world. And then as you move through the story and you move through the series, what you learn is that this is a lost colony. Mm-hmm. that that uh, the things that make the world fantastic are either intrinsic to the world itself or were developed by the Terran colonists in order to adapt to the way the world was. Hmm. At so, what point do you realize that? Um, in this one, it's pretty much by... It, it's the kind of the denouement of the second book. Mm-hmm. The characters end up, a couple of our main characters end up going to the spaceship, which is still in orbit around the planet, hmm. and and discovering this. Uh, the world of Samaria, as you are initially introduced to it, feels very... It, it has a lot of echoes of Christian mythology in that some of our main characters are literally described as angels. They have wings, they can fly, they can sing songs that summon things down from the heavens, lightning or rain, usually weather-related stuff. They're not described as being able to perform any other miracles, and as you move through the story, you learn that they are not, in fact, the kind of heavenly beings that you might think from them being called angels because they require non-angelic women to reproduce. They don't reproduce Mm. well with themselves. They don't breed true. And in fact, they don't really, I mean, they breed. But uh, what this leads to is a fairly complicated and oddly tiered society where the angels live in two or three distinct city spaces that are partially tailored to their body types and to their ability to fly. If you want to get into one of the main parts of the angel holds, you must be taken up by an angel. They must fly Mm. you up there. They're not accessible from the ground level. And a significant chunk of their focus and abilities are on the singing that they use to control the weather. Because as it turns out... Finnish mythology. Yeah, so as it turns out, the there are large bits of this world that would be unlivable because of storm systems and the way the weather patterns move. If the angels couldn't come through and sing in rain or sing it away. And what you come to find out is that they were genetically created and the computer in the spaceship that orbits the world was programmed to respond to their songs to respond to these specific songs. And there's, it never really goes into a lot of detail as to why 
the system was developed the way it was. That's mm -hmm. not really made clear. But much of the story revolves around the inevitable results of this kind of stratification, of the difference between the subcultures that have cr developed on this world. And despite the existence of these angel characters and, and the, the semi-mythology, all of the stories are really romances. They're really about two people from very different subculture spaces being pushed together or coming together and falling in love and how the results of that change the shape of their world. Because there aren't that many angels, really. So anytime anyone interacts with an angel in a, in a deep kind of way, it's going to have a significant effect on the governance of the world, on the high-level cultures of the world. And there's five books in this series. Three of them go together as a complete story, and the, and the other two are kind of outliers filling out uh, other areas of the world space, other bits of the story, backstory, side story, that kind of thing. That was the first one I found. But the one that I fell in love with is called the 12 Houses series. And it is a quartet with an additional book. And there's no, there's nothing in this series that makes you, that, that connects it to sci-fi in any way. If it's a lost colony, we never find out about it. Mm -hmm. What it is, is the story of a continent that is ruled over by the titular 12 houses and the magic of this world, which is not welcome. The folk that have this magic are typically outcast or made to keep their magic to themselves. And at the beginning of the story, we learn of the rise of a cult that explicitly and specifically claims that magic is evil. Mm. It's never really made clear what evil means in this context, only that these people are bad and you get the usual sort of, they'll steal your babies and they'll rob you and they'll make you do things that society doesn't approve of. There's no, you know, sort of overarching devil figure in this story. There, are, there is an underlying mythology in the world space that because the timeline setting of the story is kind of... Uh, late Regency era corresponding. Mm. So our characters don't really worship. They don't really believe in gods in that sense, but there's a history of gods existing, of belief in gods, and that does tie. It ties in in the sense of what the characters believe in and what they try to understand about the source of their powers. And the major arc of the story follows three or four characters who are highly placed in some of these ruling houses and the interactions between them, this new cult and the fact that the king 
is ailing, but nobody's seen his daughter in about four years. Mm. And so you follow these characters as this new cult sort of tries to instigate an overthrow of the government and the characters that are descendants of great houses get drawn back into those politics, even though maybe they didn't want to be. And it culminates in this sort of combination battle that is part military, part political, and part magical. And without each of those three elements, the battle couldn't be won. Like, it takes all of them. And the cult is overthrown, and the person behind it, who was also a member of one of the great houses and incidentally had magic, uh, mm. is... is I don't remember what happens to her. I think she dies. I don't remember clearly, but but basically she is is exposed and made to look a fool in front of everyone. Ah. Uh, you know, the mm. usual kind of thing. And I'll admit one of the reasons that I do truly love this story has to do with the fact that I resonate quite strongly with one of the main characters who is her abilities are all fire-oriented, which obviously is going to speak deeply to me. But she is a profoundly frustrated woman hmm. who was... Her, her family is not portrayed as good to her in any way. Mm -hmm. And she, at the beginning of the story, she has chosen to walk away and abandon all of her family. She renounced her name. She renounced her place in her house. They threw her out and, and denied her existence kind of thing. Um, and it happened late enough in her life that there are people who are like, well, but what happened to your sister? She used to exist. What would you do to her? Where did she go? Mm -hmm. You know, but she, she has tried quite desperately to vanish into being not an ordinary person because her powers are just entirely too strong for that. But not associated with the great houses and she does not want to go back to being associated with the great houses she does not want to be drawn back into that family in any way but she's too powerful to be left alone either and that's that's kind of how she comes to get drawn back into this situation is is the king basically taps her to do some investigating because she's known to wander and she's known to not give a f about anybody. And then she ends up just falling in with these other groups of people. Um, What's her name? I don't remember. Let me let me go I'm find looking it. At the characters and let I me can't. go find it. We are Seneth. There we go. Seneth. Mm -hmm. Like my brain tri kept trying to give me a name from another book, and I just so her name is Seneth, and the first story is is them kind of taking the the Seneth and, and her companions taking the pulse of all of the great houses of all of the the areas of the country. How do they feel about the king? What are they? How do they feel about this cult? What is going on? Uh, mm -hmm. The second story is about the king's daughter's new uh, first exposure to these houses. She goes on a, a grand tour to be introduced to all of them and parties. And a sort of a semi-subplot of this story is about the way that alliances and marriages are arranged between the houses and 
the the seasonal flow of the politics as well as the members of uh there's a word for it but i don't in in this story they're called the 13th house and they're basically the the folk who have the nobles who have land who have power but aren't great houses and so they owe fealty to one of the great houses and they are starting to feel somewhat abused they're starting to feel like they're not being heard in some of these places mm-hmm. and that ties in with some of these more rebellious groups the third book focuses much much more strongly on this rising cult and on the threat that they pose and the things that they do not all of which are related to magic and we learn in this story that this cult is recruiting uh, mercenaries armed men and literally sending them out to kill people that are suspected of having magic with no real proof or or no legal standing to that they're just Mm -hmm. going out and doing their cleansing things is the way that they see it and the fourth book kind of draws all of these threads together as the king tries to figure out what he can do in a alliance political sense to reclaim the loyalty of the more rebellious houses. What can he do? Uh, and because of the kinds of stories that these are, naturally the focus then becomes, okay, who can I marry my daughter off to? Mm-hmm. Uh, which then runs into a problem because she has managed to fall in love with uh, one of the other members of the circle we've been following from the beginning who is related to no one. And uh, while he is quite powerful in his magic, he has, he, he has no connections to the politics at all. He is, he is a commoner. And so mm-hmm. we get to play with the story of, okay, how do we resolve this? And how do we make sure that that the loyalty is confirmed and our princess discovers quite a spine here? Uh, in some stories, you know, where, where this is the plot line, she, she ends up marrying and keeping the guy that she loves as, as a guy on the side for, for the sake of the politics. But in this story, the princess just says, no, if I can't have, if I can't have Kamen, I will have no one. Mm-hmm. And I don't care what you say, and I don't care about the politics. I will have this. And the end result is is uh, they end up uh, telling some lies and making up some stories to to have people accept this person that she's chosen. And once they remove the cultists out of the way, things simmer down quite a bit. Uh, a great deal of the conflict on a greater level in these stories is driven by this cult and the woman who leads it and her brother. And once these people are removed because they do actively rebel, things, things settle down quite a bit. Uh, Mm -hmm. The fifth book is kind of a side story that deals with sort of the aftermath of all of this. And it focuses on a character that we've only encountered in passing and the end results of, all of the all of the dramatic politics and how that has settled out. So I quite like those because I I can I feel like I connect quite strongly with Seneth and so reading her story is is something that I really enjoy. 
After she finished writing the 12 Houses series, she moved on to yet another world space, this one even more and elementally focused. It's called the Elemental Blessing series. And here, again, the magic of the characters is, as in the 12 Houses series, intrinsically tied to the land that they live in. In that if they... The people who aren't born in that land don't have these magics. And although it's not quite as clear in the Elemental Blessing series, if they move away from that land, if they go to a different country, their magics are less powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of the Elemental Blessing series, that magic and the folk who have it the most strongly are deeply involved in governing. And in fact, almost everyone has a touch of the magic. It, it's the magic in the Elemental Blessing series is this sort of combination of elemental magic with uh, a different variation on a horoscope. That any given character is associated at birth for various reasons with one of the elements and that element is considered to at least somewhat define the basis of what kind of person they are you know fire people are like this and air people are like this and and when they are born there is a ritual for for each child where the parent usually the father will go out and ask two complete strangers and they're supposed to be strangers to mm-hmm. go with him to the temple and draw blessing coins each of which is marked with a glyph representing a characteristic and they're supposed to draw three blessing coins and these are considered to be the blessings that that guide and define this child's life um, and a bit like modern horoscopes, there's it, there's this idea that this is a guide. It's not a definition. Mm-hmm. And that the ways in which these blessings can express themselves in a person's life can be very different from what is expected. Hmm. That um, if, for example, a child is blessed with <laughs> charm... That doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be sweet and biddable and everybody likes them. It might mean that they're very persuasive Mm -hmm. uh, or half a dozen other things. But these are are considered strong, strong elements in in each child's life. And the focus of the story basically comes down to, again, we have some great houses and... The idea here is that the person that expresses the strongest connection with the element associated with their house becomes the leader of the house. And they can do some pretty fantastic things. Um, Mm -hmm. The main character of our first book discovers that she has inherited the... I forget what they call it exactly, but she, she she has become the representation of water. And there's a point in the story where she falls in the river that winds through the capital city and is is washed down by the current and she's in the water for what's probably half an hour and doesn't need to breathe Mm -hmm. and the water washes her up on on a shore farther down in the city 
Um, there's another point in the story where she literally stops the river rising. And hmm. another where she causes it to rise. Um, hmm. And then, again, as in the 12 Houses series, our main character and the people she collects around her are, are somewhat rebellious. They're not... They're not happy in the position that society wants them in. They have chosen or were raised to be separate or outcasts. They tend to see things differently and they tend to be incredibly stubborn. <laughs> they, they are unwilling to be told you must do XYZ because you were born this or because of that. And... In both sets of stories, our main character does more or less end up in the position she was fighting to get out of. And yet, through the course of the story, they have shaped the conditions with their stubbornness, with their choices, so that the position they end up in is not what it was when it first started. You know, Seneth does, in in the... The Twelve Houses story, Seneth does become a significant figure in the government. She is reconciled to the house that she grew up in. In the Elemental Blessing series, our main character, whose name I can't remember off the top of my head, um, again, becomes an intrinsic part of the government. She takes the rule of her house, and yet she does not continue to permit some of the complacency, some of the abuse of power that existed before and she's very supportive of other nobles and other figures who want to choose their own path mm -hmm. who, want, who want not to be locked into a specific way of, of looking who want, for example, not to be protected necessarily The perks of uh, letting an outsider uh, get the recognition he or she deserves. Yes. Yes. And again, as with the Twelve Houses in the Elemental Blessing series, the positions that most of the characters end up in are not, they're not what I think of as full triumphs. No character gets exactly what they want. But the compromises are considered and no character the characters that end up being happy are the ones who honestly deserve to end up being unhappy that by their choices by their personalities by their refusals to change they have put them in a position where they're they're just going to be unhappy mm -hmm. and if they if they had chosen something different or if they had chosen to become different people then they could be happier unlike mm -hmm. In the Twelve Houses, Elemental Blessings does not feature any character who could be looked at as purely evil or purely bad. There is no, no irredeemable villain in this series. There's a lot of politics. There's a lot of personality clash. There's a lot of people who believe different things. There are a couple of cultures that are so wildly different from the culture of Welse as to be as to seem offensive. The two cultures do offend each other because of the way that they look at things. But except insofar as our point of view is through characters from Wellsay, the other culture is not presented as bad, merely wildly different, mm -hmm. which is, is something I really enjoy. 
um, over the beginning of the pandemic. I don't know when she wrote them, but they were released all together. She wrote uh, a trio of stories in another completely different world where even the magic here is not elementally related. And it's a bit harder to grasp because the characters in these stories have... it's Many of the characters in these stories, the important characters, are... Like, this is really hard to describe because they're not exactly twins. And they're not mm -hmm. exactly duplicates. But they have copies of themselves. And I've only read them once and it took me a while to get my brain around it. Like, the books are titled Echo. Mm -hmm. And they're referred to as Echoes. And again, here we're dealing with characters who are fairly significant in the government and the politics of their world space. And the way that their desires and their choices interact with what's expected of them. And the way that p other people's desires and choices, which may or may not be good or healthy, interact with these people. And I'm not describing this one very clearly because, again, I've only read them once and mm. I didn't. I liked them, but not nearly as much as I liked the Twelve Houses and the Elemental Blessings, so it didn't stick in my head quite as deeply. Mm -hmm. I should probably go back and reread them. Echo in um, Onyx, Echo in Emerald, Echo in Amethyst. Mm -hmm. uh, she has written uh, six or seven standalone novels and uh, a uh, some short stories that that come collected together that are linked to existing worlds. Um, Jenna Starborn, which is a, another one of my very favorite books of hers, is a very sci-fi treatment of the story of Jane Eyre, mm. which I I love I love it. It's it is it hits almost all of the same notes, but it is very much cast in a sci-fi setting, and I think it's one of the most brilliant retellings that I've ever encountered, but it's not well known. Mm -hmm. Wrapped in Crystal is, uh, it's a murder mystery wrapped in fantasy. And that's really all I can remember about it. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I haven't read it very often. Summers at Castle Auburn is, I think, it's a story that treats with the old concepts of the Fae and how you can move into their space and be swept away and how those spaces are delimited and marked so that people know to avoid them or don't know to avoid them <laughs> and what happens when those lines are crossed and how different people are attracted to or repelled by that kind of element. I don't think I've ever read General Winston's Daughter or The Shape Changer's Wife. I might have to go and read that. But in general, my favorite thing about Sharon Shin is that except in the case of the 12 Houses series, she rarely presents us with a character that is intrinsically evil, that's intrinsically bad. We're always dealing with deeply complex characters, some of whom are deeply flawed. And the flawed character may be our heroine, or at least our point of view character. Mm -hmm. And I really admire that as a way of storytelling. It's a really good, it's a really good thing uh, 
this is not coming out clearly. If you want to learn how to develop complex characters with interactions with others where those interactions shape each character, I would definitely recommend reading Sharon Shin's books. Mm-hmm. As with some of our previous authors, I think she does an excellent job balancing the the gender, um, the number of, of each gender of character in the story. I don't recall that she has any significant characters that are not heterosexual. And almost all of her stories involve some element of romance. But I also don't recall that there's anything in any of, any of the stories that says, uh, you know, none of the culture she's created seem to be against homosexuality. She just doesn't really touch on it. Mm-hmm. I want to say there's there's a side character in the 12 Houses series that's gay from one of the 12 Houses. But I haven't read them in a couple of years, so I won't swear to that. I found a gay thing. I think it was the 12 Houses that had this woman that led the cult. Right? I'm not saying she's gay. But it just immediately made me think of uh, several leaders of uh, gay conversion camps in America. Well, yeah, later, there is that specific connection, yes. Yeah, who later kind of repented of all the work they did and also came out as gay. Right. And it's strange that you reject something that is even in you so hard that you go on to damage other people's lives and go on a glorious campaign against that is a, true a side thing. of you. That is a true thing. Uh, there is, but I don't. I don't recall that there are any significant characters who are actually gay or lesbian. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. as as with a lot of sci-fi stories, a lot of fantasy stories, it is not difficult to compare the way that characters in these stories behave about magic, about them having magic, or about other elements, to the way that modern people behave about sexuality. Um, and gender it's not Mm -hmm. difficult to make that comparison and in many ways I've heard a number of sci-fi writers speak about this in many ways they're doing that on purpose I don't know that Sharon Shin explicitly is doing it on purpose but it is very common in sci-fi writing and listening to the authors for them to say I did this in order you know as part of if I cast it in this different way, I can confront people with ideas that they wouldn't be willing to confront in the real world, in a, mm-hmm. in a, a book that's based in the real world. If I, if I cast it separately enough in a different world, I can make them look at things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. In any case, a good lesson in thinking about people that are different. And that's Sharon Shin. Well, guys... That is it from us for today. Thank you for listening to Judas Priest with us. And uh, take good care of yourselves. Take your pills if you have pills to take. And drink water and eat something. Right. Uh, Remember to grow your hair as long as you want. And listen to as much heavy metal as you like. And practice good self-care. And pet any kitties that come in range. Yes. Get on it. Yeah. Find the kitties. Find the kitties. Find pictures of Rob Halford with kittens. Yes. There's there's plenty. You'll find many. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye.